I think our high school choir went to go sing at Joe Biden's house. And so I gave ties to them and I was like, hey, like, like, you know, either wear these or just like give them out at the party. Right. And if you see Biden, like throw him this gift, like think about how nice of a gift it is. Right. Like, you know, thanks for inviting us to your home. We got you a tie. And they did. And then through like more and more people handing this man ties, he was like, this is crazy. Like, I remember there was a there was a neurosurgeon. He like went to visit Biden in the White House and he was like, oh, like, look at my tie. Like, here's a tie. I got you a gift. And so at this point, this man's like, okay, this is strange. There's a secret Indian boy somewhere in Delaware who's feeding me ties. And then that's when I was like, okay, you know what? I got to do one to just call it. And then I made a ride in with Biden tie. And again, I gave it to someone who was going to visit Joe Biden that, you know, for, for one of many reasons. And Joe Biden just loved it. And he thought it was hilarious. And so again, to this day, I have not met this man, right? I have not physically had a one-on-one meeting with this man. But all he knows is that there's someone from Archmere Academy in Delaware, an Indian boy who's really funny and is selling ties and is just feeding ties to the Bo Biden Foundation, feeding ties to like the Ryden with Biden, like, you know, the Ryden with Biden movement, just a bunch of ties that just he ends up having because, you know, because I just was very obsessed with like getting him ties. (laughs) Hey, y'all, welcome back to this week's episode of the 501 Hustle, the only podcast that finds incredible, passionate and driven Gen Zers and gives them the opportunity to share their amazing stories, unique insights, and awesome side hustles. I am your host, Vivek Pundit, and we are here today with Treyas. What's up, man? How are you? Good, man. How are you? Very good. I'm so excited. I haven't seen your face in forever. I know. I'm so so glad you invited me. I'm so glad you're doing this podcast. It's huge. I'm super excited for it, for sure. So to everyone listening, Treyas is actually one of my best friends, and we've had some insane times together. And we'll definitely dive into those a little bit during the podcast. Shreyas is currently a junior at Stanford, studying biomedical computation at Stanford University. Silence. It is beautiful, especially now with the pandemic. No one else is out there. And it's like just me on like a a thousand acres of Stanford campus. So it feels really special. Although he spends most of his academic time researching and studying bleeding edge technologies like synthetic biology and artificial intelligence. I had no interest in like regulatory concerns, policy, none of that. I was like, look, I want to be a bioengineer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how dope is it that we can engineer life? It's incredibly scary, but incredibly promising, right? And then eventually, like, I got really concerned about the first part, which is like, holy shit, we can re-engineer life. What does that mean? He got his start as a tie salesman. When he was a freshman in high school, he started a novelty neckwear company called Novel Tie, which sold hilarious knee-slapping ties to people across the country. He ended up doing $75,000 in annual sales one of the youngest suppliers to Walmart, where he landed a 20-store pilot agreement and founded customers in Fortune 500 CEOs, activists, and even the president of the United States. That's why I think I do what I do. That's why I started selling ties. Because taking nothing and turning it into something, like that's the American dream. That's what my parents did when they moved here. I'm sure that's exactly what your parents did when, when, you, know, when you think about their story. Like, that's something beautiful. He decided to use his newly gained entrepreneurial knowledge to a childhood pastime, competitive spelling. Having been a two-time national competitor in the Scripps National Spelling Bee, he and a friend created a company called Spell for Success that uses digital learning to train the next wave of champion spellers. That company was eventually acquired, of course. He now has spent the past year working on a book collaborating with a Stanford computer science PhD on the subject of regulating artificial intelligence. 
the book revolves around kind of the archivist class, which is, okay, what are the kinds of, you know, there's many fields of law, right? How does the existing kind of law and legal structure that exists, how can we change it or adjust it to incorporate the new issues and problems and questions that AI brings? And by no means throughout the book, do we answer these questions? Okay. We're just trying to lay out, okay, in this kind of field, like for example, questions around liability and AI, questions around what does it mean for AI to be a person, right? Because in some, you know, in Saudi Arabia, yeah. like there is an AI that is that is considered a citizen of Saudi Arabia. And that would technically be his current 501 hustle, but I would argue that Shreyas is a walking 501 hustle. <laughs> See, that's the thing. I feel like I hate having one side project. You know what I mean? You got to have multiple because most side projects don't amount to anything, but like one in five do. And so you got to, you know, you got to like hedge your bet. Like, are you, are you constantly working? Do you ever do nothing? Do you ever just like sit there and, and not work on something? Like I, I've started meditating for about the past year. And even that, like, that is the act of doing nothing. But when I tell people like, that's what I do, they're like, oh, that's an activity. And again, like, I don't think, I don't think I'm ever there, but like, I do, I do enjoy sometimes just like going for a walk, just looking around. I just want to clear my mind. So you're a junior now, right? Yep. So yep. I met you, but right before you were about to be a freshman, correct? Yeah. When I just graduated high school. Yeah. You just graduated high school. So by then you had already done novel tie and you sold ties to Biden. And then you had, you were starting, you had been in the national spelling bee twice by then. Yep. Yep. And you'd worked with Rami on Spell for Success. Yep. So all of that happened before you got to college. Yes. It was a busy time. I mean, the, the thing that's weird is like, sometimes I'm like, wow, I definitely peaked in high school. Like I was doing so many things in high school. Right. But I think it like changes in college because like part of your job in college is just like, not necessarily like to do, 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 uh -huh. but like to learn across so many different things. And I feel like the past three years, I've just spent so much time, like, instead of just like going into action and trying to do something right away, spending a lot of time taking a step back and being like, I don't even know what's out there, dude. Like, I, I feel like from when you met me three years ago, the path that I now want to pursue is like radically different, yeah, which yeah. I don't know. Like, I'm glad I spent the three years doing this, you know? Yeah. So say you're not doing anything, but you're just helping write a book on regulating artificial intelligence. That's, that's chill, right? That's just <laughs> everyday things. <laughs> I was taking a class at the, the law school called Regulating Artificial Intelligence, and it was taught by uh, a professor, Mariano Florentino Cuellar. So he's a, a judge on the California Supreme Court. Yeah. And this is like a passion project of his, which is like, you know, he, he's a judge in California. So he's seeing, like, he, he lives and breathes cutting edge technology and the regulatory implications of that, right? That's what he does every day. Those are the kinds of cases he sees among the millions of other cases that, you know, the Supreme Court of California handles. And he taught this class and I, I was, I fell in love with it. Like, I don't think I've ever been so quickly attached to a subject than in this class. And I was like, I know I want to keep on doing this. And although the class ended, I was like way too obsessed to just stop there, you know? Yeah. Okay. Well, keep walking us through that. What's that obsession? Yeah. Yeah. So like, I think one of the challenges I saw was that there were a lot of lawyers who were thinking about AI or thinking about the implications of technology. And now we live in a generation where technologists have to think about their own implications of their work. 
right? We live in, in like, you know, all of these tech employees, Google, Facebook, all of these people, they're thinking about, hey, how does my technology impact the world? Because we have lived through just how dangerous those technologies can be. And AI is like, it's, you know, frankly, it's like a pretty, it's like an old thing, but it's a relatively new thing. You know, people have been doing research in, the, in this field for like decades upon decades, right? And back then they were just considered crazy. Like this was like, if you went home and you told your mom and dad, like, oh, I'm doing my PhD in like machine learning, they'd be like, you're crazy. That's crazy. You want to build human thought, mental thought. And again, like if you were doing a PhD in AI, it was like, you were a crackpot. You were on the fringe, right? But then like in 2010, you know, like the early 2000s, 2010s, shit popped off, right? I feel like we are at this age where like, computers and like the basic first wave of technology has already kind of been done. And it feels like, ah, there's nothing left to chew here. Right. But with AI, like we are living at the, you know, this kind of like huge wave of it. But I think the next 50 years are going to be after we figure out, okay, where is this going to be used in the world? How do we live with those uses? How do we live with the impacts? Cause it's going to radically change how we live life as humans. And so I think that, that like futuristic obsession became so readily seen in that class and so that's why i was like you know this is this is something where i get to live in the future but also think insanely deeply about the intersection between humans and technology which is like that's where i've always loved to live you know so when you when you're thinking about that intersection between humans and technology the future of ai what feeling does that elicit excitement nervousness uh, are you scared to an extent like we should all be scared about any, any great innovation will come with extreme disruption, right? Disruption can be extremely good, but change can also change things for the worse, right? Think back to like the, you know, the Obama 2008 campaign. We believe in change and, you know, that idea, like they were believing in change for good, right? But like change is double-sided. And I think AI is one of those things where like actually all disruption is a double-edged sword, yeah. right? And I think especially AI, it's one of the few things that we are actually ceding control of. Right. So like if you think about as a technology has evolved, we've started to like live in abstractions. Back in the day, they used to do like zeros and ones into a machine. If you were like quote unquote coding, you were quite literally like zeros and one in it, right? Like it was extremely basic. You were writing machine level code. Then we created like these nice little languages that are kind of like an abstraction. Like, hey, instead of having to type all of this stuff, I'll just write this simple command and it'll like make it a little bit easier for me to do. And those abstractions have been helpful, right? That's why, like, you know, you see, like, five-year-old kids coding, right? It's crazy. But now, this abstraction is something in which, like, we've abstracted it so much, and we've given up so much, like, kind of human input that we're just kind of letting it go to a machine, right? And that worries me. But that's also extremely powerful, because that means that now that we're working with these abstractions, we can get to applications quicker, right? Like, in healthcare... It's crazy. You know, do you have an Apple Watch or do you know people who have Apple Watches? Yep. Right? It's crazy. People are wearing a medical device on their hand, or on their wrist, and it can potentially tell you when you're about to have a stroke or sorry, when you're about to have a heart attack, right? And it uses extremely complicated deep learning algorithms in the back end to analyze your heart patterns and to even get to that conclusion. So that's, that's amazing. That's a world I'm excited for to continue to live in because that's, we're only scratching the surface there, but the first part also scares me. Can you tell us the difference between deep learning, machine learning, and AI? Yeah, yeah. So again, by no means do I claim to be an expert, right? I'm still an undergrad, but 
if you think about it, like artificial intelligence is a very like broad strokes term, mm-hmm. right? And the idea is that can we create technology that replicates or mimics human thinking and the ability to do tasks the way a human would do them? And I think that's kind of like the broadest definition, right? A subsection of that is machine learning, right? And machine learning, again, if you were to simplify it into the most basic terms, right? It's like it mimics how humans learn. If you think about how you learn how to read, how to do any task, right? You kind of start with nothing. You watch it happen several times, or you get a series of steps of how it happens, how you go from zero to something, right? How you go from input to output. And along the way, there's all of these steps that you follow to get to the output. And let's say you were presented with a new situation. Machine learning allows you to go from any new input to an output that you want, a desired output, right? Because after you've seen it a bunch of times, after you've done it repeatedly with all these different, you know, on specific parameters, you can get to that output again. But the thing is with machine learning, you're kind of like, you're saying, I know what the input is and I know what kind of output I want to get to. That applies for most situations. The most common example people use is like with um, using, uh, you know, machine learning to predict housing prices, right? So if I were to tell you, hey, this house has three bedrooms, three bathrooms, and has this much square footage, it can get you to an estimated price. But with deep learning, the thing is, I don't have to tell it, hey, try to figure out what the price is, right? Or, hey, here are the inputs you should care about. What, it, what deep learning allows you to do is, again, using, again, there's like this insane amount of math that goes behind this, right? That's like kind of, that I'm ignoring. But essentially, it says, hey, you don't need to know the output. We'll kind of figure out, we'll find out things that are significant in this data set. In all of these inputs that you're giving it, in all of these kind of like latent vector, or like there's like latent things that deep learning will allow you to learn that you don't even have to know going in. You know, like I, I think like the like uh, like pinnacle example. Let's say I wanted to uh, do like the the where's Waldo, like find you know find Waldo. If I showed them, like let's say a hundred thousand images of the where's Waldo like puzzle, right? I wouldn't have to ask it where's Waldo, right? I would ask it what's important in this picture. And after analyzing all of these images without being explicitly trained or told what to do, it will say, hey, for some reason, this Waldo guy keeps on showing up. There's something in this data set that has something to do with Waldo. You figure it out from here. Mm. So that's an incredibly powerful tool. Because it's like, it's kind of like you're throwing things at the wall and hoping what sticks, right? Again, extreme amount of math that goes behind making this thing work the way you want it to. But it's pretty cool. The vibe or like the theme, I guess, from this is, machines having a ton of autonomy. I mean, teaching themselves pretty much, right? We, you said in the beginning of this answer, like we want them to make decisions like a human. Um, from a regulatory standpoint, like, you know, do we need massive regulations on this? It sounds kind of frightening. Um, in 50 years, like, is this really as big of a threat as everyone thinks? Or is that all of us kind of being ignorant, uneducated, not really understanding that this isn't as dangerous as we think? I think it was about last year. I, I did a project on the history of regulating automobiles, mm-hmm. right? I start there because Basically, what I did in this paper, and again, this was just like a, a, a research paper for a class. And what I did was I was using that as kind of an analogy to how we should deal with AI, right? Because again, put yourself back into like the early 20th century. If you saw a vehicle, if you saw a human traveling 40 miles an hour, yeah. right, across something, you, you must be thinking you're in the matrix, right? People lost their shit, right? Because this was crazy that we would just, again, that anybody anywhere could just hop into a car and potentially kill kill a person right just by driving really fast and i think like with ai we have to acknowledge that like again 
we've gone through rapid technological innovation before. And the regulatory system has worked in kind of incorporating it and kind of, again, and there's still a lot of flaws, but it's possible. I was, so I, uh, as part of it, I got to go into like the archives. So if you're a university student, I would highly recommend go into your university's archives. They just have a bunch of old documents there that like people haven't seen since like the early of the 20th century. Like I, I picked up a book from like the 19, 1914 or something about automobiles. It was basically like, I think it was Minnesota's Guide to Automobile Safety for Kids. Because early on in the automobile days, these things were killing machines. Again, people were driving this incredibly recklessly. They had like no rules. There was no traffic laws. Imagine that. At the time, you know, in this kind of world, uh, sorry, this war effort, one of the reasons they told people not to drive cars, two, two couple of reasons. One of them was to protect, you know, it's any kind of like metal and any factory work should be focused on military applications, right? Developing tanks, developing, you know, cars, but only cars for the military to use in World War One and Two. And then another reason was they didn't want people getting into car accidents because so many hundreds of thousands of people died in car accidents in the first couple of years of automobile, like popularization. And they said, it is your duty. Like I remember there was a, a pamphlet in Rhode Island that said, it is your duty to drive safely because if you die, that means less people are here to support the war efforts. Think about how crazy that is. That is the Rhode Island government telling their citizens, hey, be careful. We like you, but only because you're useful in the war efforts. If you died for, you know, if you died like 10 years ago, didn't matter to us. So that kind of innovation scared the shit out of us in the early 20th century. And over time, like, when's the last, how often do you think about it when you're getting into your car? It's a killing machine. <laughs> and, and again, it's never fun to think about it like that, but it's something that has changed how people live. In my mind, AI is very similar. Again, there's a lot of differences here, but we figured it out. Isn't that kind of beautiful? So again, there is something scary about it. And it did, I mean, it wasn't until like the 1960s that people had to start wearing seatbelts in cars. Think about how crazy that is. It took them 40 or 50 years. And again, people were like saying this from like the 1920s. They were like, hey, we should probably have like some safety mechanisms on this car because it's kind of dangerous. It took them 40 to 50 years to get like something as simple as having like requiring federal law to say that you have to wear a seatbelt. So I'm not saying it's an easy path. It's not like a, we're going to change it overnight. But months to convince these fools to put on masks, <laughs> and, it, and it's still, people still aren't convinced. So, like, <laughs> I know, <laughs> like, you should be thinking about it. But we've done it before, and we can do it again. We just again, it took hundreds of thousands of people dying in car accidents over the past century for us to really get work done. That should not be the case with AI because it's even more dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. So, what's your book about? Yeah, yeah. So again, essentially, the the book is surrounding the class. Right. And, and so the class was offered by this professor, the, the student I'm working with, or I guess he, he's not a student anymore. He was a, a computer science PhD student and he had done work for the professor doing research and he was the TA of this class. Right. And so one day, I think he and I like ran into each other one day and we were like, Hey dude, a lot of people want to take this class. It was super competitive to get into this class. I was, I, I don't think there were that many undergrads. It was like undergrads, uh, PhD students from across Stanford, law school students, business school students. It was crazy. Wow. It was the most interdisciplinary class I'd ever been in. Probably why I loved it so much. Like, I remember one day I looked over to my left and I saw like an older dude and I was like, oh, like, hey, like, you know, like we started talking and it turns out he's the machine learning professor in the, he, like he's, he's a tenured professor in the computer science department. Like, 
and he was attending the class because he was so interested in the subject. Um, so again, to answer your question, again, I don't want to get too lost in every chapter, but we kind of do a brief run as much as we can of the law and try to figure out, okay, what are the questions that are important here? Because the goal is really for it to be kind of like a, a starting off point for engineers, for law students, for anyone who's interested in this intersection. Like, where do I start? Here's a bunch of case studies. Here's a bunch of examples. Here's some frameworks that you can use to tackle this. But like, start, and you got to keep on going. Like, by no means do we answer any of these extremely important questions. That's, that's like a life's work. This, this is just a year of getting the right questions down. Gotcha. So I, we'd interviewed someone earlier on this podcast um, who was in, a researcher, uh, and she was talking about how a lot of times you think the end goal of a researcher is publication, but to her, the end goal is how that publication can be used to then affect change in policy. And here, like based off what you're writing, it obviously sounds like you know making policymakers are more aware of the situation, or even like other students that are coming up into the field. Uh, what is the next step after you publish this book? Like, does there need to be a think tank that's made? Does there need to be more student? There's there need to be a whole field of like AI regulation? Like, what is the next step from getting all these questions on the paper to actually answering them and creating policy for them? Yeah, yeah, that's a fantastic question, and and frankly, probably something we should think a little bit more about as we're you know. We've, as we're kind of nearing the end in publication, but like, believe it or not, people in the government are, are worried about, like, you know, people are worried about this and they've already started taking a bunch of steps to try to address this, right? People always say like, oh, the government's so slow, blah, 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 blah. Like that, that might be the case in certain instances, but I think they recognize just how fast this train has been moving and they've been moving pretty fast, you know, given all the, the I guess, like the stereotypes about slow moving government. So, you know, like there is like a national commission on, on AI right? There, there, you know, the, the president, or I guess now the former president, I think, you know, like he, he passed an executive order on AI, like there are offices and people working and thinking about it. And there's a bunch of think tanks who are working on this, right? We need to do a better job. And again, in my opinion, of like training, like people who build technology need to be thinking about policy. I'm not saying that they need to be policy makers, but they need to be thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're just, we're still not there in my, in, you know, in my like bioengineering academic experience, right? By the end of it, like we can do some pretty crazy things. One example, like again, this is just like between us and between anyone else who's listening, I guess. But uh, <laughs> everybody's public. <laughs> like, I, I, like one of the things, like you know, by the end of it, like if you did bioengineering at Stanford and you've taken the classes, like you can like start biohacking yourself right at home. And I mean, you could do that right now, which means like you could start playing around with like, oh, like how can I get this yeast to do some pretty crazy things? Like, oh, I could produce like sugar. Oh, that's harmless. But I could also start producing drugs, right? Like I could also be producing weapons. Like that's crazy. Dude, has that ever happened? Has a Stanford student ever gotten busted for for doing something like that? There's a bunch of stories where like Stanford students find like vulnerabilities and like different <laughs> softwares or technology, and they just like exploit it. And like, and they usually report it. They're like, "Hey, guys, like you kind of messed up here. Give me money because I found it because that's I could have awesome. done something so much worse." That's actually so awesome. Like I remember uh, IO caucuses, right? Do you remember that app? Debacle, do you remember this? <sighs> Refresh me. Yeah, so like essentially what happened was like the Iowa Democrat, like the, the state Democratic Party was organizing these cock- Iowa caucuses. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They would use a mobile app to kind of like make the process a little bit better. Yeah. Right. And like this app was horrible. Like there were so many uh, security vulnerabilities, there were so many issues. And like basically the integrity of the Iowa caucuses became compromised because they yeah. just like had a really bad, shitty app. 
And I remember like the day this was happening, like one of my friends, he, I knew he was like, he was a white hat hacker, which means that he like does this professionally, which is finds bugs in people's codes and finds vulnerabilities. I mean, I think he, he used to work for like the Department of Defense Election Integrity Commission in, in, uh, in the US. And I was like, oh, like, what do you think about this? And he was like, oh, I don't know. I'm looking through it now. And I was like, what do you mean you're looking through it now? He's like, oh, like, I'm like working on figuring out what the issues are. That way I can tell. So his, like, he actually had access to the code base. Like he was working on that as we were speaking, which is great. Like, that's why, like, to all, anyone who, who's a kid listening, like study hard, work hard to get into a place where you can meet people like this, wherever that is. Maybe that's not at university, but do that. That's sweet. Can you share a little bit more about how you got into Because I've always just been fascinated about when I met you in Detroit, like all the stuff you'd accomplished before you'd even gotten into college. Uh, wh- First of all, your parents must be insane. How did your, what is your relationship with your parents and, and what kind of did you learn from them that allowed you to take on this entrepreneurial journey? Like that literally is a young teenager. Yeah. Yeah. I will say like, I love my parents to death. And I, I think like anything that, I have done, will do, continue to do, it's because of them, hands down, not a question. Like, I like to think I'm a smart guy, sure, right? But like, really, I'm not that, I'm not, I'm not hot shit, right? I was blessed with fantastic parents, parents who, again, modeled behavior and, you know, determination and actions that like, if I could do half of that, I will, you know, I will, I will have done anything that I could ever dream for, right? My parents, I can't say this enough, they are the best. And again, everyone says that about their parents, but again, obviously they do. So my mom is a dentist, right? And so she owns her own practice. So she started her own small business when I was in seventh grade. So she had been working as a dentist in like this big, like, you know, kind of like conglomerate dental company, right? And then when I was in seventh grade, you know, she was fed up with it. She was like, look, I know I can do a better job. And I just like, don't like working for someone else. And then she was just like, I'm going to quit and open up my own practice. And again, like when I was in seventh grade, like I kind of understood, I was like, oh, cool. Like my mom's going to work at a new office now, but I didn't really understand until again, it became like, it was a, it's a family office, right? Like my brother, my dad and I, like we all went into the office when it was opening, like we were cleaning up, we were building chairs, we were building desks. A lot of what you see in that office is from like our entire family, putting in time and love into it. And mainly my mom, by every means it's, you know, my mom is doing everything, but you know, she doesn't like building chairs, so she, she gets the free labor she has to, to build chairs, right? And that was when I was like, wow. I saw, you know, we had, I'd seen that building, just empty, nothing. It was just like an old rundown, like, actually, it was, a, it was like a mechanic shop, right? And she turned it into a dentistry, like dental practice. And she was serving patients all across this community. And again, these, this community especially is low-income, high-minority high population. People... Some of those people, you know, again, I talked to these patients, like, you know, I got a chance to interact with a lot of the patients because I, I, I work there often. And it's like, no dentist was coming to open up there. No one was going to come there. They didn't have money. They were all, in, you know, they're, on, they're all on Medicare, Medicaid. They're on, you know, shitty insurance plans, usually through no fault of their own. And no one wanted to practice there. My mom did. And I was like, that is, that's amazing that someone could take this idea. And she did. And again, I'm not saying it's a million dollar practice. It's still a lot of work needs to go, but like, that's why I am who I am. It's because I watched them through that. I saw how hard it was. And I was like, man, one day I would want it so easy. I would want it so much easier, but it's not a choice. If you want what they want, or if you want what they had, you're going to have to put in what they did. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think that's where I get 
mostly everything from and um you know my horrible eyesight and uh my bad jokes all for my dad and my mom <laughs> perfect balance you got the best of both <laughs> for sure for sure that yeah, same similar story with my parents they um came here from india and then my dad studied to be a doctor he's currently a head and neck surgeon and my mom was an electrical engineer but my dad right out of residency started working for this guy um who hired him and and the guy that hired my dad was basically screwing him over and not paying him for the work he'd done with the patients and by the time and my dad he was taking advantage of my dad he's just gotten out of residency didn't really know the real world uh by the time they figured it out you know went to court um lost a couple like the first couple of years of when i was born like being with me i was with my grandparents and my mom quit her electrical engineering job i'm sorry that was her major she was in consulting and she was like told my dad she's like we're never gonna work for someone again we're starting our own thing and they started their own small uh small business and so they have a private practice where my dad is essentially the surgeon and my mom is kind of like the ceo but uh yeah same story where they came here and they said i never want to work for someone again then they embarked on their own journey and we've learned from them it's pretty cool yeah, you know it's, it's funny I, I didn't mention my dad at all but like my dad is also a software consultant he you know he does a lot of work but you know a lot of his time any of it, his five his 501 hustle is like helping my mom's business right like yeah. there's not a day where like it's like a marriage, but it's also like a partnership. I will say they are the best co-founders. You know, they've co-founded a, a great business together. And they've also, in my opinion, co-founded great kids. I was going to say, they, uh, that was good. <laughs> I was going to say yeah, that. <laughs> like I said, I get my bad jokes from my dad. So <laughs> there it is. That's hilarious. Um, okay. So what's up with this tie thing? Honestly, the first thing I think about when you're like, I was going around selling ties, I think of like Mark Cuban's story, going around selling knives or whatever. Um, what's up with this tie stuff? And please tell us the story of how this whole Biden relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, like the story of the ties is actually like very, again, I think everything in life, it kind of is like this, right? We're just like, it just kind of like started happening and you don't even like realize it's happening until it's like, until at the end, you're like, oh, I guess that's what I'm doing now. Like, this is what I've been doing for a long time. And people say that's called having a company. And I guess that's what I'm doing then, right? So essentially, I went to a public school where I could wear whatever I wanted, right? I would wear sweats to school. I was incredibly horribly dressed, like phenomenally bad. Like, I, I, I'll be honest, like I look at photos from like my middle school years. I was like, how did anyone let you, like, how did someone let me leave the house with that? Don't worry. Like, I see that all the way up until high school. So <laughs> are you sure you don't still say it? Come on. Oh, funny. Look at your stupid dad jokes, man. <laughs> I mean, Come on, I got it in me. I got it in me. Um, but yeah, so like in high school, I had to start going to a private school and I'd wear a uniform every day of my life and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. Like, I, it's not like the clothes were uncomfortable, nothing like that. It was just like, I just didn't like someone telling me what to do. Yeah. Again, I think we live in a country where like if someone just like tells you to do something, especially like a power, like a sense of authority, like Americans just have this like attitude where we're like, nah, like, yeah. no, that causes a lot of problems. But it's also like, something that's like inherently American that I don't think like my parents never understood. They were like, what? Just do what you're told. You know, it's not that hard. So again, like I was like, okay, I'm going to get a bit cheeky, right? I ha you have to wear a tie as part of the uniform, but they never say what kind of tie you have to wear. And I was like, oh, you know what? I'll just do like crazy, ridiculous ties, like ties that no one should want to wear. And like, I'll be honest, like the first iterations of ties were horrible, but I think it was just like, people found it like kind of funny that they were just like, oh, like big fuck you to the administration. Just like wear whatever, you know, like wear like a chick magnet tie or a stud muffin tie just to say like, yeah, like I'll just do what I want. Right. <laughs> and it was like a small ounce of rebellion. This is how smart people rebel. They start their own companies and abide by the rules. <laughs> they just bend them a little. <laughs> and it was crazy. Like, again, like in the beginning, like I think people thought I was crazy. Like, again, 
if you're an Indian parent and your child comes to you, and again, like I'm, I'm not like I was doing well in all my classes. I was like extremely good at STEM. And I was like, I want to sell ties. They were like, you know, you know, BJ is working on apps. Do you know what apps are? You should be working on those things. Right. And I was like, no guys, I'm going to do this. And so, and again, and then they were extremely supportive, initially skeptical, extremely supportive afterwards, as I think most parents uh, are. And so I started doing this and I found a manufacturer in China. I started designing these ties. I had no art background. I had no graphic design skills. I had nothing. I didn't know how to find a manufacturer. I didn't know anything about ties besides like, oh, like I have to wear one. So again, I became an expert on ties. I started learning all about like graphic design, manufacturing, supply chain, all of that. And I just started selling ties. The wow. selling part I was good at. And again, it just, again, like I said, it just like kind of got out of hand. And eventually like, you know, we started doing pretty well. Like we tapped, we found a good need private school students who hate wearing a uniform who again like want to rebel just a little bit but not a crazy amount you know yeah and yeah and so it just kept on rolling and then you know by the end of it i remember like like my juniors and senior year like our company was like donating money to the school like we were fundraising for the school we were you know like and we, we did this for like dozens of organizations companies whatever we actually uh made the ties for the bo biden foundation the bo biden foundation was uh the foundation in honor of Joe Biden's son who had passed away from brain cancer, right? One of the, oh, also one of the contexts is Joe Biden actually went to that private high school when he was a kid uh, and also went to that school. So again, like there was definitely some like, uh, I don't know, like there was definitely that connection, right? Because in Delaware, people know Joe Biden. Like people know the Bidens in Delaware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once he had gone to Archmere, which is the school that I went to, it was like a, you know, like it made sense, right? How the connection happened. And so being at that high school, I learned that the Bo Biden Foundation needed ties. And I was like, bet, like I can do that. And so we made those ties. Okay. So I know you got a, you got a hard stop in a couple of minutes, 15 minutes, but I want to talk about how we met in our in Detroit and our Detroit experiences. Cause that was, that was super fun. Uh, and that's really how we became best friends. So we, Shreyas and I were in Detroit. I was working at Rock Ventures. You were at Quicken Loans, right? Am I right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So we were, we were there for internship in the summer. We were staying at Wayne State University in some like, oh, we were in those dorms. Those, yeah, yeah, we were, yeah. Yeah. Shitty dorms. Yeah. They, they had issues. But anyway, so we were in those dorms and I was there for, I don't remember if you were there before me or what, but I remember like for the first couple of days, I didn't really have any friends. I was kind of walking around, you know, eating lunch and dinner by myself. Um, together. We did jumpstart. Oh, that's how we met. So we did jumpstart together, but it's not like we were friends immediately afterwards. Yeah. We were like kind of separated um, because in Detroit with Quicken Loans, they have a, it's called the family of companies. So they have like 150 companies that's all owned by a holding company called Rock Ventures. So I was at, I was at the holding company and Trace was obviously one of the biggest companies um, under it at Quicken Loans. But because we weren't at the same company, we didn't like get to meet right away. Uh, but we were, you know, kind of doing our thing. And then as, as everyone probably knows, Indians find Indians. There's like this <laughs> Indian magnet that attracts us. And so I found him. And then we started going on dates every night. We had like <laughs> straight <laughs> dates every night. We'd go to, uh, what was it called? Siva. 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 The, the pure vegetarian place, right? And then you came, um, had fire food and just talked about all sorts of stuff. And then uh, we were both working on kind of our you know, our jobs or whatever, but we also both had this itch to like, want to do something on the side. And so eventually it, towards the end of the sum uh, summer, Shreyas, me, and then another kid named Aniruth who went by Andy, 
also Indian, which is what the comical part is. We're, we're three Indian people walking around the floors of the Detroit. I was like, who the hell are these people? <laughs> um, so then we came together and started a startup called Beast, which hilarious. But, I mean, looking back, but it was definitely a dope name then. And we were basically working on um, an algorithm for this company called StockX that would basically put together an outfit for someone. So if they just bought sneakers, it would help them. It would be like a complete your look uh, like algorithm or outfitted, give you like a handbag, a nice jacket, some socks, whatever else that you could buy from there that would kind of put your outfit together. And so we were creating this algorithm that was allowing us to do that. And the, the end goal was hopefully StockX would drive sales and other categories other than shoes. Um, and we basically embarked on this startup journey for, I would say the next month. And then we got hired to work part-time after we left. Um, and that's how we got really like, I mean, that's at least how I got introduced into the entrepreneurship world. Obviously, Treyas had done it before that. And that's when we met Dan Gilbert, the owner of the Cavs, owner of Quicken Loans, chairman of Rock Ventures and the family of companies. And we worked closely with him to, to get this startup rolling. Uh, and then it eventually, I mean, culminated in, in StockX, like wanting to specialize in this department, hiring a couple people. And then and we kind of handed off the project to them because we were still in school. But that was like an inc- do you remember that? That was one of the most insane times of my life. Yeah, I, I like don't tell that story that often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one be- like no one would believe it. I still don't believe that it happened, right? Like that's cra- it was crazy. I know. Do you remember that car ride? Oh, I relive that car ride every time I'm like, hey, you know what? I'm not really sure what I'm doing. You know? Yes. That's like, a oh, set up this car ride. Cause this car ride, like, that changed my life. Again, before college, that changed exactly what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah, dude, for sure. I not only changed what I want to do, but changed, like, gave both of us insights into what is possible, like, in the world, with our, within ourselves. Like, it was just a crazy, like, self-discovery, like, moment. Uh, but basically what happened was we were supposed to meet with Dan Gilbert. He obviously is super busy. He's also just, like... I don't know. I feel like some billionaires, maybe you're known for the punctuality. That's how they became billionaires. This billionaire, Dan Gilbert, not known for punctuality. Says he's going to be there at two o'clock and your meeting's going to be at six o'clock. But we, um, but we're also like three Indian dweebs who, you know, he didn't really necessarily have to care about us. So, but he promised a meeting with us and um, we're waiting and waiting and waiting. And then like four or five hours past the meeting time go by. And so we're like, pretty much like, okay, we're going to leave work. Like it's almost, it's like 7, 8 PM. Like it's like late. Yeah. Um, and we're getting ready to go. And then uh, one of his uh, assistants says, Hey, don't go yet. He, he's going to meet with you. Just wait. So, all right. So we wait Probably another 45 minutes go by. We had met the president in the meantime. Remember that we'd met Tony Saunders and or I guess you weren't there for that one, but then Dan walks out and he goes, come with me. Um, I'm like, okay, like, you know, this is, this is, a billion. I mean, he's the owner of the Cavs. Like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. He's telling me to summoning us. He says to go somewhere, like, you go. Right? Yeah, yeah, you go. You don't, you don't ask questions. <laughs> so we start following him and we get into his car, which was ridiculous. We're like in this car with Dan Gilbert and he's got a driver, obviously. And then there are two team leaders who are our mentors. Cause I, I mean, we weren't working directly with Dan Gilbert. We had our own team leaders. They were in the car with us. And Dan basically was like, okay, tell me more about this company idea that you have. So we tell him it's about what, 30 minute car ride. And I'll never forget because it was raining. It was gloomy. He was on his way. He was in a rush because he had to go to, he was going to Paris for vacation. And so just a super interesting vibe. And then we get to his house and he says something like, I know we'll never forget. He basically looked at us, all three of us, and we were sitting in the backseat. And he goes, look, we started this internship program, find driven interns like you three. 
I want to start this company with you. I'm giving you the golden ticket. I'm going on a plane to Paris right now, but FaceTime me from Paris and let's get this shit rolling. And I don't know if we responded or if we kind of just sat there in shock. Um, but yeah, do you remember what you were feeling? I mean, that was crazy. My heart was racing. Dude, yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, like I was still wrapping my head around that like this guy, like this guy was like talking to us, right? <laughs> like, like again, like, you know, it's one thing that again, one thing that like to his credit, right? He is like the most normal billionaire I could ever imagine. Like this guy is like amazing person, dad, husband, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, he's an amazing person, right? Extremely down to earth, given the like given the place he's at in the world, right? Like he's extremely humble, right? And just like very like straightforward. And I was like, I, I couldn't even wrap my head around it, right? Like I remember I was telling my mom that morning, I was like, yeah, like I don't know. Like I'll be hanging out near his office, which I guess would be super cool. Just to, like maybe see a glimpse of the man. Yeah, yeah. But now, like we're on we're in his private car on his way to his house. Like, I don't know. Crazy. I, I so, so the story doesn't actually end there. So we we do this thing and then we come back and I remember calling my parents freaking out. My heart is racing. I'm like, and it's not like it's not because it's like, oh, we think we're hot shit. Like all, it was just because something, we just talked to this insane human being and he had said some incredible, you know, compliment. I mean, it was just ridiculous the situation. And so he had left. We didn't really know how to handle it, I guess. I mean, there was like, we didn't know how to follow up. And like, I remember I asked my parents, they're like, Trace, do you really think we would have advice for you in this situation? Yeah, like, yeah, what? Yeah. And then we were like, does he really mean FaceTime him? Like, was he just, you know, saying it? Like, we didn't know what the hell was going on. So we don't say anything for about a week, but we were, that was our last day, pretty much. We were leaving a couple days later. He was in Paris. So we get a text. Do you remember this text? I still have it. I, yeah, I still have it. That's great. Yeah. He texts us, me, Shreyas, and Andy in a group chat with our two mentors from Paris. He says, well, three young, smart, potential entrepreneurs. Literally two weeks ago at this very same time, we were driving in an SUV heading towards my house as I was on my way to Europe that evening. All I could think about over on the other side of the pond these past four days was the killer e-commerce technology company we were going to start and build together. But when I got back home, not only were you three packed and gone, but I never heard a single word from any of you. Nothing, zero, zip, zilch, nada, nil, nix, za. Not a single text, email, phone call, not a word. And I believe I gave all three of you my iPhone number. I would not have predicted darkness, blankness or the void after all of that energy we had going 14 days ago wtf not a single version of what we talked about has advanced in any way since i left and then you all left not even a dear danny letter on the way out where have you gone joe d'amigo a chairman turns his lonely eyes towards you or something like that signed dan g <laughs> do you remember that? okay we'll have to get into this many many different times right and the story doesn't stop there. Like he's he, like, I remember, th I think there were three different occasions where we got that kind of letter, right? Well, we, got, I, I, we got videos. He videoed us. Yeah. Oh, that, that was like, bad. That was Lex, what are you intellects doing? <laughs> I'll be honest, like the only, the only kind of sense of comfort I got in those one, like, I remember I was like hanging out with my family and I got that text message and I was like, fuck, I'm fucked. I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. I, I got, I'm fucked. My career is over. And then I was like, wait a minute. LeBron got one of these messages too. That yeah. means LeBron and I have something in common right now, which is that Dan Gilbert has flamed the shit out of us. Yeah, that's funny. Well, he, he, yeah, I think he knows he made a mistake with the whole letter with LeBron. He knows he didn't make a mistake with us. <laughs> the thing is, again, like it's 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 a glib joke, right? But like yeah, yeah, yeah. The, he 
you know, like it's crazy because that would motivate us like crazy. We would work even faster, work even harder. And the thing was, at any time we would tell him what, like any update, he would get right down to the issue that we were facing, like so quickly, like okay. within 10 seconds, he'd be like, I know exactly what your issue is. And this is what you need to work on. Yeah. Like, he wouldn't tell us how to do it, which was amazing because he gave us that flexibility, you know? Because oftentimes didn't even know what he wanted. He just was so good at thinking outside of the box and trying to put things together, connect the dots and, and have these broad visions and questions and then see where we go. It was really cool. But yeah, amazing. And, and then we were working part-time. And then do you remember once we met in Boston? Because we, we hit, you, me, and Andy met in Boston. We left Detroit. We're in school. You had flown up from California. Andy was in Boston. And I came from Providence. So we'll all meet in Boston. And we we're working. We sent Dan a video with an update of what we'd accomplished. Thinking, oh, Dan's going to be super excited. We got together. The energy is still there. And then we basically get a phone call from the president. Well, he wasn't the president at the time, but from Tony. And he's basically like, dude. What the hell was that video? Like Dan says it was a complete waste of his time. <laughs> and then and the funny part was he was, I mean, when we reflected on it and looked at it and we think about from a billionaire's perspective, he's running 150 companies, like, yeah, the video probably wasn't necessary. Like it makes total sense. Um, so I mean, it's not like we got our feelings hurt, but that was I I'll never forget getting. I mean, we've been roasted by that man several times. <laughs> like we've been inspired. Yes. and motivated to a level that like like you said like you know the impact that you know that that that, that person and that organization has had on our lives is crazy i feel like both you and i and, and you know all three of us we think about the world differently we think that there's a possibility that we could achieve something really great which for a young per for someone for a young person to be told that to get validated like that that's i mean that's something we'll never we'll never live down we'll never be done paying that back you Absolutely. know and i think a lot of people, especially during this division and this time, like this idea that there is an opportunity in this country, or, I mean, you look at the past of America, obviously you're going to, you know, say, you know, what is this nation? What can I really do here? Does the American dream really exist? And I completely understand that perspective, but personally, and I think you would agree, like after working with Dan and, and seeing what's possible, like it gave me hope that there is possibility in this country. There's possibility everywhere. And Dan helped me realize that we can create that. Um, and so I think ever since that, I mean, I, I, my whole idea is of, of what I can do, what is possible in this country, you know, how can you make money, but also have social impact? Um, how can, you know, he always said, we're not for profit, we're not nonprofit, we're for more than profit and all these types of lessons, all the isms that we, you know, we didn't talk about, but all these things have stayed with us and I think have changed our lives tremendously. So I couldn't agree more, but, um, anyway, I know you got yeah. to you got any closing thoughts for us. Yeah. I mean, kind of just like on this note, right? Like I think. There's so many things to be stressed out about in this country, in this world, everything that's going on, right? But again, like, if a pizza delivery guy from Michigan can become the 15th richest person in this country, mm -hmm. if three nerdy immigrant, you know, children of immigrants can get time with this guy, can work on a company, can, again, attend amazing universities, things are possible. Yeah. There, there are barriers and there are some, like, systemic things that are wrong that prevent certain, like, people from accessing it, but it's possible. And that hope, like, Amer you know, again, I want to end with this quote that I, I love. It's like, like, America is a lie. It's a disappointment, right? But it can only be a disappointment because there's hope that there's something better. We live in one of the few places where that's, that's possible, right? That we can say, I hate this place, but I can do something to change it. That's amazing. You know, like, that's, that's fucking nuts. Anyway. Dude, I never thought about it like that. Yeah, that's really cool. I love it. Who said that quote? Where'd you get that? Um, I think his name is Samuel Huntington. He was a professor at Harvard. And then one of my professors at Stanford, uh, Professor Tom Ehrlich, he shared with me that quote and said that that was his favorite quote. And again, 
I was like, dude, I get it. That's and right. he, this professor is like 70 years old. So he's heard a lot of smart things before. For yeah. him to be like, that's my favorite quote, I was like, yep, I get it. I get my favorite quote. Well, thank you so much for being here, man. This was awesome. I know everyone, like this was one of the most fun conversations I've had. And I'm going to have you back because we, we, I feel like we just started. And the whole hour has gone by, but I feel like we got, we got plenty of more stuff we could have ta- talked about. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. And then to everyone listening, um, if you want to connect with Shreyas, this guy is awesome. And I know he's a, he's a master networker. So reach out to him via Instagram. Um, I'll put his information like in the description of the podcast. And if you or anyone else wants to be on the podcast, cause you've got an awesome 501 hustler, some inspiring, unique insights that you would like to share with this amazing network of Gen Zers, let us know. We'd love to have you on. Um, But until in the meantime, we will uh, see you back next week. Thank you all. Have a great day.